Welcome to AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. I've never gone this long without going to Mass. My period of religious rebellion in college consisted of some wrestling with the Catholic faith as I saw it, but I still never missed a Sunday liturgy. I know what you're thinking, I'm a spiritual bad boy over here, but parish leaders around the world have been grappling with this new reality of no Mass in a unique way. How do you function when your existence as a community is dependent on people gathering for worship, education, service, social events? I pose this question to today's guest, Father John Whitney S.J., who is the pastor of the Jesuit parish St. Joseph Church in Seattle. As you might remember, the Seattle area was one of the earliest regions in North America to face the COVID-19 pandemic. I wanted to know how parish life has sustained at St. Joseph despite the quarantine. Father Whitney, who is the former provincial superior of what was then called the Oregon province of the Jesuits, has loads of experience to draw on in this hard time. And I loved the insight he brought about how this experience has actually helped to empower lay people in some ways. If you like what you hear, tell your friends they can subscribe to AMDG wherever they get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Well, Father John Whitney, thanks so much for hopping on to to have a conversation today on AMDG. Uh, I'm excited to talk to you because we've been talking to all kinds of Jesuits and others who have been experiencing this pandemic in a variety of ways, but haven't yet had a chance to talk to uh, a pastor of a parish. So uh, I'm happy to have you on to kind of share that experience. So maybe if you could just start by telling us uh, a little bit about yourself. Well, thank you, uh, Mike. I am a, I've been a Jesuit for since 1983, I have uh, been at St. Joseph's now, this parish, for 11 years. This is my last year, actually, at St. Joseph. An interesting way to, to end a time. Yeah, right. Um, I was, before I was in this job, I was the provincial of the Jesuits of the Oregon province of happy memory. Uh, and I have worked in university work, you know, the usual Jesuit thing, been a little bit of everything, couldn't hold a job down. And uh, so I grew up in California, but I entered in the Oregon province because I had worked in Alaska uh, as a Jesuit volunteer. So that's what drew me into the society. Tell me a little bit about St. Joseph Parish, the parish where you've been you've been serving. What is it like? Uh, where is it? Um, yeah, let's give us some detail. St. Joseph is one of the older parishes in Seattle, uh, which is not old by Eastern standards, but... Uh, we are about 106 years old now, and uh, we started as a mission of, of Immaculate Conception Parish, which actually was also where Seattle University started. And so we're on uh, Capitol Hill in Seattle. It is a, a large parish. We have about, well, 1,800 families, uh, households connected to the parish, uh, largely white at this point, although we do have a, a, a fairly good mixture of uh, folks of uh, Asian origin, different Asian communities, Filipinos, uh, East Asians, uh, and, and we're trying to build up our our diversity. Uh, it is a parish that's been very active in the city. It's one of those places that has been has a long activist uh, history, uh, not unusual, I think, for Jesuit parishes. Very involved in the immigration issues and issues of. Uh, social justice. We've had a sister parish in El Salvador for, we just celebrated 30 years with our sister parish in El Salvador. Uh, so we've had, we have a lot of connections that reach out. We're known for, I think the two things that the parish is known for would be our work in social justice, 
ministry and our work in uh, our liturgies. People come here. We're a real destination parish. People come from um, all over the region to come to St. Joe's to uh, for liturgy. They also come because of our school. We have the one of the largest uh, grade schools west of the Mississippi, wow. Catholic grade schools. It's a wonderful school and uh, has survived uh, hard times before. They're, uh, the famous time in the 70s when they, you may have heard that somebody put a poster, a billboard in Seattle that said, well, the last one out of Seattle, uh, please turn off the lights. And many of the Jesuit ministries in Seattle were threatened at that time. Hmm. And St. Joseph's sort of reinvigorated itself. And now the school is a, a destination for uh, students from, again, around the region. So it's, a, it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's an amazing place of very excited and interested and engaged um, people. We're lucky to have a large and talented staff as well. So. Sure. And just imagine what, you know, a place like Seattle, which again, I can only imagine not knowing much about it, but obviously over the past generation, just been entirely reinvented in terms of the stuff that's there and kind of what it's known as now and for the kind of church to stand by and kind of see all that change. I'm sure even in your time there, you've seen some some big transformations in the city. Oh, it's, it's huge. And, and St. Joseph really is a the reason we came to this part of the town was because it was uh, the, there was the immigrant influx of Catholic immigrants. And so the bishop asked us to set up a parish over this way. And we have uh, we are sort of the elephant graveyard for Catholics in this region. And they all come back to be buried out of St. Joseph's. It's a real it's a real place of history for people that almost there's not a work in the diocese that you will find that does not have people connected to St. Joseph's involved in it, whether it's St. Vincent de Paul or uh, the shelters or the uh, various works of the bishop's office. There's people from St. Joe's involved in everything. So it's a wonderful place to be. Again, I think about all the things that make up a dynamic parish as you're describing and connecting to my own experience, you know, places that have vibrant liturgy with great participation and music and uh, a real sense that the Eucharist sending folks out to participate in acts of justice and then and faith formation and education, all those things you mentioned. It's so hard to do all those things when you can't get together again. So much of parish life depends on physically gathering. So what what has that been like? Again, being in Seattle, especially as the, the pandemic was really taking off in North America, really was like an early hotspot. So just bring us through like kind of what that experience has been. Walk us through that. Well, in the first few weeks, as things started to break open, we tried to respond almost instantaneously when we realized that this was this was bigger than uh, one nursing home in uh, Kirkland. And so the parish started to respond. And then that week, the diocese, and the diocese has been amazing in this. I think real leadership from our bishop. We've been very lucky. And uh, they, they sent out directives, draining the holy water fonts, making sure that people were receiving on the hand, things like that for that first week. And then as we saw how deep and broad this was going to be, uh, to close the parishes, I think, was a, a bold step uh, for the, uh, well, actually, I shouldn't say close the parishes because they didn't really close, but to, uh, to decide to go uh, in a different direction in terms of the sacramental life of the community uh, was a real, it was a shock to me, honestly. I was, I was doing all the practices that we could do to make people safe, but I never could imagine the churches being closed. It was, uh, but it made complete sense once we heard about it and we acted quickly on it and tried to, get up a, a video link to people as soon as we could. Uh, and we just 
put our heads down. And I think we've done amazing work in first in, in just Facebook Live, which was the probably the easiest format. And then we got a YouTube channel going. And then to get YouTube Live, you have to have a thousand people. So we sent out a word to people. You have to register for this so we can get you, so we can do YouTube Live in time for Holy Week. And boy, people jumped on it. Yeah, I was going to ask. So again, as you're approaching that unprecedented thing, you're a pastor, you're bringing together uh, your team thinking about, okay, like what, what do we do? And so you're mentioning a few things like getting video quickly, that seems to be a top priority. What are some of those early priorities, you know, that, oh, we need to kind of have this no matter what? Well, the first thing was video, obviously, because we wanted people to be able to reach out to us. The second thing was the idea of uh, making sure that our people knew that this was not, we're not closed that we're open. So how do we staff, how do we keep the church itself physically open so that people could come for personal prayer and a place of welcome to them? So one of the things we've had to do is to staff the church with members of our our staff who clean up after each person who comes in. So we wipe the pews down. Uh, all my years of theology prepared me for this. <laughs> I, sit in the, I sit in the church two hours a day and wipe the pews down so we can keep it open. We keep it open about four to five hours every day. So the people in the neighborhood and people, and that has given sense, a sense of uh, community, both to our parishioners, but also to folks in the neighborhood who feel connected to us. And then I have the most wonderful staff who are engaged. I, I Right now, I don't feel so much, uh, I said to somebody yesterday, I said, I don't feel so much like a pastor in the old sense of running my staff. I feel like we're all in canoes in our own channel of the river. And so I, we have a liturgy uh, director who's a tremendous musician, and he has put up on YouTube music that people were longing for, longing to hear during uh, the, you know, the, the liturgical music that they longed to hear during the Holy Week uh, services. And so he has put up albums and songs that he himself has uh, produced at other times. He's made that available. Our faith formation directors, um, we have an adult faith formation, a children's faith formation, reaching out to make sure we did, uh, we've done the examine for people. Uh, we started every night and then we went to, now we're at twice a week um, uh, so that people can go back and, and close their day off with something that says St. Joseph's was here. We did daily mass from the very beginning uh, and it's an amazing little group we have for daily mass because there's probably 70 to 80 people who watch it now live every day. And then, um, it gets up to, I, I just checked today, today's mass had 200 and I think 220 people. I've already viewed it. And, uh, that kind of idea is people have a sense that we're, we're there for them. We're reaching out for them. They can call the parish. And the number that they call is is now my number, so I get it on the cell phone. And and then um, we have uh, one of the members of my staff who's in charge of our development program started the buddy system in which we reach out to people and begin to form, uh, just check on how people are. Uh, we kept the commissions going through Zoom, our commission system going through Zoom, and we kept our, uh, our meetings going. And each meeting would be sort of a faith-sharing opportunity. And then if there was business to do, they would do the business. But we've tried repeatedly to keep the life of the parish, the sense that the parish was alive, even though it was dispersed. And I know that uh, 
again, as you're saying, there's some of those modes that are good at kind of getting things out to a lot of people, the kind of one to many, but then like facilitating some of the interactive stuff uh, also, you know, is really valuable. As you're saying, people can can kind of talk with one another. And so they people have been using and responding well to things like Zoom or, or other platforms for some of that interaction. Well, we found that some things work and some things don't. And we, yeah. the whole thing was throw enough up and see what works. Right. We found that we, we were going to do sort of open Zoom meetings for anybody in the parish who wanted to join in sort of an open prayer session. We found that those didn't work as much as targeted meetings. Mm. We began to say, so our uh, LGBT community has gathered, I think, three times. The women's community has been very active on Zoom. The women's uh, ministry has been very active on Zoom. Uh, We have our seniors who meet for rosary, uh, rosary group. So we find that after a few experiments, we found it was much better to target the group that we're meeting with. I'm meeting with our, uh, our, the group that went on the couples retreat. We're meeting tonight for a sort of a Zoom cocktail hour. Hmm. <laughs> and it's just a way of, of making those connections. I think people are feeling very isolated. Uh, and yet the parishes continue to be the place that they know somebody's going to connect them up with it. The other thing has been, um, and this is our, our, uh, faith justice person has been tremendous in organizing ministries that we can do. So our young people are going to be organized around creating um, uh, care packages for people in shelters. So hygiene kits. Uh, We have uh, two different groups that we're providing food for, actually three different groups that we're providing food for. One that we were doing, we've been doing all along uh, and then uh, a shelter and then uh, our St. Vincent de Paul group uh, is organized. So these people have a feeling that they can make a connection through St. Joseph that they really want to do. And that's been, that's been what's, what's worked and what's allowed us to, uh, I think, continue to, to reach out and even to grow. Uh, it seems to me that this is a wonderful opportunity for evangelization. Uh, people who haven't gone to church in a long time are connected because they, they tune in. Sure. Uh, to the masses or to uh, something that's going on at St. Joseph's. And it's been a good thing for that. So my wife and I have three young kids, four and under. And um, I know that for us, like getting out to mass is always a challenge. And so so there are some ways in which like when we've had, we had for Easter, a a Jesuit friend, we had a few of us gathered together for for mass that way. And um, in some ways allowed for them to run around when they needed to and to come back together and it was less disruptive and, or even, but like also like coming into the home, then like there's more on us or I think an opportunity for us to like, okay, well, we're not, we're not going to be able to like kind of pass the buck to the liturgy folks to provide the spiritual experience for our family. We're going to have to kind of take some ownership of that um, and think of what we can do to kind of pray at home, to kind of observe some liturgical seasons here on our own. Have you heard from, um, from families or others who are saying like, Oh, this is a chance for us to, to learn how to do this. or we're praying at home more. What stories have you heard about that? Well, some of the stuff that we, we sort of reap the harvest of being here 11 years, a lot of the, the children know me because I love having kids at Mass. Your description of your home Mass is very much what happens here on Sunday mornings at one of our Masses. The kids are a little wild, and it's wonderful. And um, so we get uh, people said, well, how about doing a children's liturgy of the Word? So every week uh, we have our Mass, and then immediately after we'll come up, I'll spend some time just talking to the kids and doing a children's liturgy of the word for five or 10 minutes. 
uh, breaking open the word for them and leaving them with some questions. And the parents love that. Uh, our uh, faith formation people put together a how to do um, Holy Week in your house and a, a sheet that people had access to. We sent it out to everybody and uh, and we have an e-blast, an electronic blast that we've been doing for, for a long time. We're doing now two a week. And this one um, allowed people to participate in. And what we found is a lot of communities participated in Holy Week in a different way. So we couldn't do foot washing, but we had a way of doing it at home. Uh, we couldn't uh, do the fire. And yet we talked about it for people to have a fire in their house, you know, maybe a fire in their fireplace and then how to make an Easter candle. And we've heard a lot of feedback. That was actually Holy Week was the time that really drew people in, I think, to, to buying into that. And now we're doing uh, storytelling. Uh, we have books that people are reading to the young people, uh, the children. And the nice thing is we're getting a lot of feedback about, could you do this? And so trying to respond to that. And so the community is becoming more interactive about what their desires are. And we're going to meet those as much as we can. The way you're talking about these approaches, again, makes me think about the range of responses that I can imagine from different places, communities, not just parishes, but all of us who are faced with this is how do you respond? You can kind of, you know, and I and I deal with this in my own self, like I can panic and shut down or you see it as a as a chance for uh, creativity for something new. You said, again, a great opportunity for evangelization. But I'm sure, again, being in a spot that so early, there was a lot of stress uh, around the pandemic. How did you kind of help the community kind of face that and honor it while also kind of using it as a chance to uh, to do something new? Well, a lot of what I've been saying is um, my message has been week after week. I feel like I'm preaching or writing the same thing as it goes out to people is that um, the church is not in this is not in these walls. And we're sort of reaping the benefit of a lot of things that Pope Francis has said and that we've been trying to talk about for the last several years. The church is everywhere. And one of the graces I hope comes out of this time is um, a little bit of an attack on clericalism, that the, the priest is the facilitator, but the sacrament of life uh, is the sacrament manifests what is going on in your house. Uh, the story of Emmaus, I love to say, is it shows that every table is the, the table of Eucharist. Um, and although you can't receive the bread and the wine uh, at this point, at least not in the traditional way, uh, you, you live it in who you are. And so real emphasis on this, the priesthood of the community. And I think we've been, our whole staff has been pushing and supporting that in all our little communities. And it's funny because we've been sort of supporting that for a long time. And I think that's one of the reasons St. Joseph's has really drawn a lot of, uh, uh, this is our message anyway. And so people sure. have heard it and felt it. And um, I think they're really uh, responding to that. And so how to, the way we got through this is to say, we're still the church. Um, we're still, we're still all of us together. Uh, one of the reasons we kept the building open was to emphasize that, that this is, we're still the church and we can gather for private prayer, but this building does not define us. And we yeah. see people on the street, you know, and, and we make phone calls and we uh, keep people connected. Seems like you are, um, as a community, preparing for 
pandemic without knowing it. Uh, I, you mentioned one thing earlier uh, that I want to follow up on, talking about kind of offering the examine for people. And I'm wondering specifically about a Jesuit parish. Um, that Again, I, what I love about Ignatian spirituality is how kind of practical it is and, again, inviting you to kind of find God at work in your life. Are there any elements from Ignatian spirituality in particular that you've either drawn on yourself or that you've uh, invited the parish to kind of spend some time with uh, as particularly helpful in this time? You know, I do think um, Jesuit spirituality is is uniquely well suited to this. I was thinking of this recently uh, when when I saw your questions in advance. Uh, but that question about what makes a Jesuit parish connect to this, um, I thought of Francis found his real conversion moment in a in a destroyed church, rebuild my church. But uh, Ignatius found his looking out at a river and sort of out in the world. And I think. Uh, our spirituality is very much connected to the world. And uh, in fact, in, in some ways, parishes are still a little bit inside, outside the world of Jesuit, Jesuitness. Uh, we don't uh, instantly run to parish work as the, as the thought of what's a Jesuit ministry. And I think that's been good for us because what we've called people to is to examine how are you living the gospel in your day-to-day life. So the examine is a, is a perfect tool for helping people to realize that they're still living a holy life. Uh, they're still living a, a, a Eucharistic life, even without the, the gift of being able to receive the sacraments together. And so those tools of, of meditation and, and the tools of uh, especially the application of the senses to go out, especially in the springtime here, as things have begun to change and to see the world and to realize the world is still Life is coming forth, even in the midst of all our fear and all our uh, all our uh, endangerment. The other thing about Jesuit spirituality that's very important to me is that it is uh, it is the enemy of fear, and I think people have really that's why it's it's not a it's not a, a hellfire and brimstone spirituality. It's a spirituality that calls us to a courage and hope, and so I found that that you know, preaching that in various ways has been helpful. The examine is always the one that we go back to. Sure. It's in form or another. So as, again, a, a faith leader, you've had all these questions and ways to respond in your setting, while I'm sure also watching other leaders in your community. Again, as we said, the Seattle area at first was kind of feared to be, was going to be like the worst uh, place for the pandemic in the country. Um, things again started off badly, and there has been you know great loss there for sure. But really, the tide has been turned, and people kind of using it as a, a case study of how effective leadership at a government level can kind of help um, combat the the pandemic. And thinking about governor or uh, city officials, county officials, there just hearing again positive stories about kind of using science to kind of guide a response or just been proactive. So what have, have you been impressed by uh, what you've seen there at that level? What about that leadership do you think uh, has gotten it right? Well, I think um, at the, at the state level, the governor has been amazing in this and a great leader. Uh, governor Inslee is, is a tremendous leader in terms of saying, we're going to do this and we're going to do it. And we're going to take these sort of, ex, uh, we're going to shut down large gatherings and, uh, he didn't specifically uh, target the churches in any way, uh, but there's been great leadership from him, I think, at the very top and taking bold steps early. Uh, the second thing I think is our, even locally, uh, Mayor Durkin, our, our mayor, who, by the way, is a former Jesuit volunteer. Okay. 
was with me in Alaska. We taught school together at a oh, mission wow. school in Alaska. So um, we got that going for us. And she, I think, uh, she and other leaders in the in the region said we're going to take care of the homeless and make sure that those people have a place to stay and provide shelters. A lot of things that were done were sort of, in my opinion, sort of said, yes, we actually can do this. These problems we say are insoluble. An emergency comes and suddenly we can solve them. And it it's, it's shows that these things are all a matter of will, not a matter of uh, – uh, not a matter of impossibility. And so there's been great leadership there. And I just, I, I want to go back and say that the archbishop, uh, we have a relatively new archbishop. I think this is the one, one year anniversary today of his installation as archbishop. Uh, wonderful leadership from him. He's been very much in touch with the, the state uh, leadership uh, and, and going along with them and trying to make the churches uh, accommodate he appointed a committee right away with uh, one of the auxiliary bishops as its leader, and they've been sending out uh, reports on what's possible, how can you do this, what you shouldn't be doing, and really kind of guiding uh, the priests and the and the people through how to move forward on this. So, I, if we've done well, it's because we've had uh, we've had great support and great leadership from from both the civil and the uh, ecclesial authorities. Uh, a Jesuit footnote, of course, when we talk about uh, civic leaders in the state of Washington, is that in the middle of uh, the pandemic, as it was getting started, the lieutenant governor of the state, Cyrus Sabib, announced that he was would not be seeking re-election to join the Jesuits. I don't know if you ever met him or uh, come across him. And again, he has a long journey ahead. But uh, I I'm, met him. He's actually a parishioner at one of our neighboring parishes at the cathedral. And he said that his great influence was uh, a priest at the cathedral, Mike Ryan, to join the Jesuits which somebody asked me about, and I, I laughed, and I said, well, usually wanting to join the Jesuits is a facilitated best by somebody who's not involved. <laughs> <laughs> Many of us can scare you off. But no, I think uh, I think it's, it's been a great thing, and actually it's been a between, – between the Pope a few years ago and then this, it's certainly gotten a lot of conversations, uh, tongues wagging around St. Joseph about what is it about the Jesuits. Sure. Uh, and uh, so it's a great – yeah, no, it's a great – it's been a great moment for us. Uh, yeah. So again, at, at this stage, and, and maybe we can kind of wrap up with this, just kind of some reflection. You've been, again, uh, facing all kinds of things, coming up with creative responses. We know that for it's a time of real uncertainty for faith communities. Uh, it sounds like, again, St. Joseph is well positioned, but we know that there are others who, who aren't as well positioned, maybe hadn't been kind of preparing uh, their folks to kind of take some more leadership roles in this time. Uh, so what, like for you, like what are some of the big questions that you think are worth reflecting with or bringing to prayer or bringing to conversation with, with other pastoral leaders? What are some of those things? Like how, again, like for me, one of them is like, how do we kind of use this chance to come out stronger? Is there a way? Um, but what are some of the, the questions for you that have like animated some of your own uh, prayer and reflection? Well, I, I do want to say one thing, though, just about uh, bef- I, know I do want to answer your question, but just about maybe to take a, another part of that. There has been great sorrow in the loss of besides the schools, the loss of the eighth graders not being able to go through a normal graduation. We're hoping to do an online mass before the end of school. Uh, I've joined I'm in a group. I, I joined the group of the RCIA leaders and the, and the people who were supposed to have been baptized and welcomed into the church at Easter. And you feel kind of, how do you deal with this? Do you wait till next year so they can do it on the Easter vigil? If we're out of 
this kind of quarantine by uh, by Pentecost? Could we do it then? And so there are there is a lot of hurt and the importance of reaching people, bringing people in, and not being afraid of meeting that and saying I don't have an answer, which is an important thing. I think one of that is just to acknowledge our own inability to answer. It's day to day, weddings, funerals, those kinds of things. To acknowledge. Um, our own difficulties, I think, is an important thing as a pastor, hmm. pastoral leader. The other part of your question, what's what's been going on in my mind is, I think this really calls into question, how do we animate uh, the priesthood of all believers without denigrating, um, without denigrating the, the sacramental priesthood? And I think this is a time in which we really have to ask that question. And I think there's so often in our last 20, 30 years in which those two have been seen as in opposition to each other. And this is a moment in which um, we can really see there is a hunger for people to come to church and gather in a community led by a pastor, priest who they love, hopefully, <laughs> um, in a sacrament, in the sacraments that they love. And so there's a hunger for that sacramental priesthood and the ministry that it can bring to it. And there is also a recognition that much of that priestly um, grace comes through being a community and their communities in their homes or even people who are individual and, and receiving it through, through the screen, that they receive some of that. So there's a hunger on both sides and there's a hunger for any priest that I know uh, standing there every morning talking to my phone, uh, looking into my phone <laughs> and, and talking and trying to be human to a, to a device is, uh, is not an easy thing. I'm sure in your profession, you do that. It's a, it's a weird thing to do, but to try and, to try and bring humanity there. So I think we're realizing that we, we want each other. We desire each other. And too often the church has been, we're doing our thing, and if you come, you're saved. If you're not, if you don't, you're not. Um, and the people have sort of been, okay, we're going in and punching our our mass card, uh, the obligation. And I think there's a real realization of the desire on both sides. And I think how do we how do we build on this? How do we build a priesthood of all believers? And how do we recognize the ministry, the sacramental ministry that that um, priests and religious leaders are meant to meant to bring? I think it's a wonderful conversation. I hope it doesn't die when the pandemic ends. Um, but that's where I—that's what's been moving me, and certainly in my prayer. Sure, that's a beautiful reflection, just off the cuff. I appreciate that, Father John, and I appreciate all of your your ministry and uh, know of my prayers for your community and for uh, all the folks out there. And uh, yeah, and all the best in your kind of last bit of time uh, at St. Joseph, and uh, blessings on whatever is next for you. It's a very strange last year, I'll tell you that. Yeah, right. Thank you so much, and thanks for thanks for uh, thinking of us. God bless you and your work. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States, and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Dara Sump, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Mike Jordan-Lasky. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, 
Instagram at wearethejesuits, and facebook.com slash Jesuits. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>